All right. Well, let's uh, let's let's pray to begin our time. God, we're thankful to be able to gather together to get on this cool uh, day and um, continue to discuss Your Word as we close out discussion of church discipline, uh, discipline, excuse me, and move into baptism and trying to understand the significance of that for the church and where that falls in the scope of redemptive history. So we pray that you would give us ears to hear and um, that you would give us wisdom as we think through some of these matters. We ask for your help this morning in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, so we took a break last time from the series Last time, meaning last week, because we had a, uh, a meeting, but we're continuing right where we left off. We are going to finish up church discipline and move into baptism and then the Lord's Supper, and then we are going to conclude, rather awkwardly, I'll confess, with deacons, <laughs> because the reason they got pushed out is because, if you remember, we did elders right before elder reconfirmation. But that flowed directly into the authority of congregation in relationship to elders. But you can't have congregationalism without membership. The opposite of membership is discipline. And so now we're coming, we'll, we'll, we're going to hit the two ordinances um, because those are also related to the keys and membership and everything else. And then we'll come back to deacons before we close out. The series asking the final question, which usually does not, is not considered an ecclesiological question, and that is, what is the mission of the church? What is the mission of the church? And that is a provocative way of saying, what's the difference between the obligation of the local church as a corporate body versus individual Christians that make up the universal, universal body? Okay? What kind of things should the church be doing that are different in some sense than perhaps what an individual uh, should be doing? So that's kind of the... the the path forward. Uh, so, but I left off last time making a subtle distinction that ended up generating a lot of conversation afterward, which is great. I'm happy for that. And I got emails about it. I got questions about it. Um, I, I, I made a subtle distinction that church discipline is not simply for sin. In fact, it's not even for serious sin, but for unrepentant sin that undermines, that, that is, calls into question One's profession of faith, okay? Now, why did I make that last, why did I make that caveat? Why am I phrasing it like that? You remember? Unrepentant sin that calls into question one's legitimate, yeah. Yes. Yes, very good. Okay, Does it, did everyone hear what Ben said? So it does seem that there is a, it does seem that there is a kind of sin, which to be clear is not how we generally use the word. I understand that, totally get it. Um, it's not like a, it's not a social use of the word. You would not introduce your friend in such a sense, say, hey, here's my friend who I think is in unrepentant sin. It'd probably be very confusing. But there is sin that stems from, that is number one, not a, uh, that is not related to a core element of the gospel or primary issue. Most of them aren't secondary issues either. Um, they're tertiary and on down the, the line. But they, they are practices that stem from a good conscience and good faith interpretation of Scripture. 
okay? Uh, but nevertheless, are mistaken. And by the way, I didn't make a caveat. I kind of made a, someone said it could have been interpreted the wrong way. So I just want to clarify. I've made a, I've made a reference to some of our my brothers and sisters, uh, neither none of whom are here, uh, who who have some who have sympathies with the Pado Baptistic understanding of things, because we are glad to have those brothers and sisters in in church membership. And I was like, oh, are they here? Because I was going to make an example about Pado Baptism. Uh, I still would have made the exact example, but I didn't want them to think that someone said, well, someone could have interpreted that as you're glad someone wasn't here so that you could say that. I was like, no, I, I promise I would say it anyways. And I'm going to say it again. As the example, um, you have someone who uh, uh, has their children repent and believe the gospel, but they don't ever get baptized, ever, because they were baptized as a child. And on the covenantal Presbyterian understanding, for example, of things, brothers and sisters who I love dearly, 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 um, it seems to me that that is not what the Bible says. Um, and, and the reason I introduced this distinction, just to be very clear, is if you don't introduce this distinction, unrepentant sin that calls into question someone's commitment to Christ, you will either have to fudge on your understanding of what sin is, you have to be inconsistent with your application of church discipline, or you'll have to ad adopt an extremely radical stance on church discipline. Okay? And, and yesterday, last uh, two weeks ago, excuse me, when I was making this caveat, it probably it did not dawn on me that most people probably have not heard it phrased like this, but let me just tell you how this goes in the theological literature when you read it, okay? It's like, okay, what do you think sin is? Okay, let's just be a real, just real rough answer. Disobedience to God. Okay, good. And then they'll say, okay, well, um, do you think the Bible commands you to be baptized after you repent and believe? As a good Baptist, you know, perhaps you say, yeah, that is... Well, I understand. Okay, so do you believe that someone who repents and believes the gospel but does not get baptized is therefore disobeying the uh, the scripture and the command of God? So, oh well, yeah. I mean, I guess that is what I say. Okay, so what you're saying is, if that's disobedience, you think that they are sinning. You're like, yes, that is what I think. And the next move is, okay, so are they repenting of that? They plan to do that next week, right? No, they don't. They don't plan on getting baptized next week either. So they're in unrepentance. They're not turning from that position. It's like, uh, well, yeah, I guess that's right. I guess they are. In under He's like, oh, so they should be put under church discipline then. No. Well, why not? If you don't have, if you're not teasing it out this way, you're going to get caught. Okay. That's why I'm, uh, uh, that's why I'm teasing it out this way. When you look in scripture, uh, church discipline is reserved for unrepentant sin that calls one into uh, his faith into question because it has in mind unrepentant rotten fruit as the basis of church discipline, not unrepentant sin or a state of sin based on a disagreement on theological belief that doesn't touch the core of the, the Christian worldview. Okay, so, so does anyone have a, yeah, is there any questions about that? I understand that that is of a subtle, a subtlety and a technicality, but you understand why I'm saying it like that. Yes, no. Someone doesn't understand and doesn't want to ask a question. Who wants to ask a question? No one wants to ask a question. Yes, Ben Grady. Okay. Oh. Oh.
Right. Good. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate that. So, if you, yeah, Tracy. I did. I gave some other examples. Let me give you a couple more examples. I said that um, someone might use a version of uh, a birth control that someone, because of how they understood the science, understood to be a very quick term abortifacient. And they would think to use such a, that particular kind of birth control is sin based on how they understand the science of things. I gave an example of someone who was a convinced egalitarian um, where there was no male uh, uh, headship, leadership whatsoever in the home. There was mutual submission in the home um, with, a, with a million caveats that I don't have to take time to get into. That's not what I understand the scripture to teach. I understand that the role of elder in the church is reserved for qualified men and that men are supposed to be the head of their homes, wives are supposed to submit to their husbands, all the caveats. But at the end of the day, that someone who was living in that, that but I would not say an egalitarian is, uh, there are plenty of good uh, there are brothers and sisters who are egalitarian, and they love Jesus, and I think they're wrong on that issue, deeply wrong on that issue, but I think they're Christians. I think they're Christians. I would not put someone like that. I would not think about that as something that to go under church discipline. And then I gave an example of a gray area divorce. So here's a clear example of church discipline divorce. I don't like my spouse. I'm leaving them. They're not making me happy anymore. Life's too short not to be happy. Goodbye. Okay. Oh, brother, sister, you can't do that, this and that. Uh, uh, you know, that's going to be a, ch a church discipline case, most likely. But sometimes you have an area where, <laughs> um, because of exactly what happened, you get to one of these, like, what counts kind of things. Well, they committed adultery. Well, technically, they only fill in the blank. Does that count? Did that count what they did? as porneia, as adultery, as covenant compromising porneia. They didn't do this, but they did do this. One spouse says, yeah, yeah, obviously, yeah, they cheated on me. Well, they didn't technically. Okay, and so based on their understanding of things, there's a divorce. You might say, actually, I, I don't know that that person should be getting a divorce, but I definitely understand. I mean, reasonable people can certainly disagree on whether the act that occurred, whether that was technically considered covenant compromising sexual sin and so you might say i disagree with that but i don't think that you don't love jesus okay those are some examples of where you might think someone was in sin but it's not going to be a kind of sin that makes you think oh that person clearly isn't a christian the person isn't 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 a christian so so that church discipline is on the basis of unrepentant rotten fruit rotten fruit uh, that is not repentant of and that calls into question someone's profession of faith and like i said uh, teasing it out like that is not only going to be really what we see clearly in Scripture, it seems to me, but is also going to get you out of uh, getting backed into three nasty little corners, either fudging on your definition of sin, being inconsistent with your understanding and application of church discipline, or having an extremely radical uh, church discipline policy that's out of touch with the New Testament. Okay? If there's any further questions about that, I'm happy to entertain those things. I don't want to just introduce a qualification to cause confusion, but I think it's important to understand that, uh, especially to uh, push back against, again, the, the <laughs> I don't know if it's, yeah, Mark Dever's little quip about whether you can have a Pado baptist into membership. And he's always jabbing the nine Marks people who let Pado baptists be part of their church. So they said, right when you admit them, you'll have to put them under church discipline. They're disobeying. He said, the getting wet's the easiest thing Jesus commanded. It only gets harder after that. What are you going to say? So uh, if you're going to respond to that style of objection, you're going to need something 
like this, a more nuanced understanding uh, of um, unrepentant sin that undercuts someone's confession or profession of faith because of rotten fruit, as opposed to um, a difference of practice that stems from earnest, honest uh, reflection on the scripture. Okay. Okay. Any more questions before I move on to the final two case studies and we summarize this up and move, step into baptism and Lord's Supper? All right. So if you recall, we left off, well, we left off right there, but in the, in the actual PowerPoint, we left off. Oh, did I, how did I do the PowerPoint? Oh, here we go. Yes. With some case studies of church discipline. Um, the one we, the week two, there were two that we did not talk about. And the first is the preemptive resigner, the preemptive resigner. How does this work? Well, someone's walking in unrepentant sin. Their brothers and sisters are coming to them. The elders come to them and, and hey, they've been around. They, they know how this goes. They know what is coming. And so preemptively, what do they do? Oh, they send that email. They send that email that says, this is to notify you that I am resigning my membership. Now, why did they do that? Why would they do that? They don't want to be under church discipline. They say, oh, here's an idea. Here's a way to get out of it. Here's a way to live in unrepentant sin, even though everyone's confronting me, but not go under church discipline. I can resign my membership. I know where things are headed here. I can just try to get out. Now, let me ask you a question. Um... Do you think that that's a legitimate way to get out of church discipline? No. Someone tell me why. Why is that not? Why does that not work? Like what, what's what's wrong with even thinking about it like that? Yeah. Hey. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, you're, I think you're right on the right track there. Really, really good. Uh, let me rephrase it another way, which is just is saying the same thing that I think you said, but in another way. If you can resign your membership whenever you want, for whatever reason you want, and avoid church discipline, is there any real accountability to the church or anyone else? If you have something that allows you to get out of accountability whenever you want to the corporate body, and not be the appropriate object of church discipline. Because right when you see things going in a certain direction, you can send an email. There's no accountability. It doesn't work. That's not how you get in the church as a member. It's not how you, to your point, go out of, out of the church either. And so, yes, the preemptive resigner, uh, you, you cannot avoid church discipline simply by preemptively uh, resigning. Uh, your, your membership sending an email. It would still be that uh, you are someone who is holding to the name of Jesus, that everyone publicly recognize that you are not walking in accordance with that, and uh, that would be publicly that would be publicly communicated. Okay. Uh, what about the final one, the newly decided unbeliever? So here's how this one goes. Oh yes, Katie, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. So, so, yeah, great question. So let's, let's talk about that. So let's say I'm, um, I'm not moving my, I'm transferring. I'm transferring my membership to this church. That is when, that is where we touch base with the pastor of that church and, and tell them that they're not in good standing. 
This is not a member in good standing. We cannot sit there and commend them to you. And you need to know what you're getting into um, because we were about to put this, because this, this is headed towards this discipline and here's the issue. And were, did, were you made aware of this? And inevitably the case is, no, no, we had no idea. Oh, of course not. Well, this is why they're joining your church. And so, yeah, we certainly, because it's kind of like, let me put it this way. When this is, when church membership and church discipline is done well, it's kind of like airport security. This is the idea, at least ideally. I understand that because it's done, it's not done well, it doesn't actually, but airport security, once you go through security in Nashville, all right, and, and you're kind of like in the system. You know what I mean? When you get off in Milwaukee or Dallas or wherever you're going, so long as you don't go back out of security, you can walk around in their airport, right? And you can go to their shops and their restaurants, and then you catch your connecting flight, and you go to the other airport, and you can walk around in their airport, and you don't have to go through security again because, like, there's a front door that everyone is supposed to be honoring, the security gate. And it's very, if you compromise the front door and you got illegitimate folks in there, then they can go to any airport and do all the rest. So similarly with church discipline, you have to have good membership, good membership. And then in church discipline, you have to make sure to communicate these kind of things if someone's just going to try to transfer their membership out uh, in order to preserve, uh, to preserve the flock, the integrity of the flock. Okay, does that make, is that a good answer? Okay, great question. The newly decided unbeliever, here's how this one goes. I'm in unrepentant sin. People are coming to me. They are... Um, uh, you know, they're saying, hey, brother, sister, you need to repent, believe the gospel. Uh, again, my small group leaders talk to me. People talk to me. The elders talk to me. I'm continuing. We're, we're going down Matthew 18 here. And right towards the end, the person says, you know what? I don't think I'm a Christian. I don't think I'm a Christian. What do you do? Well, what I would suggest is you want to sit down with that. You would sit down with that person and just ask them exactly what, they're, what, what, what they mean by that. Uh, because it can be, it could be a dodge. It could be a public, I'm going to decide I'm not a Christian. And avoid church because you can't put an unbeliever under. Remember the inconsistent triad. Someone has to. You have the, what the scripture says about living in the kingdom. Someone's positive profession of faith and their public fruit. If you lose that triad, you don't have church discipline. So it doesn't make sense to put an unbeliever under church discipline. Someone saying, "I'm not identifying with Jesus. I'm not claiming to represent Jesus. I'm not claiming to be to agree with everyone in this room that I'm a part of the body of Christ. I'm not part of it." Church discipline in that sense doesn't make sense. So if you determine that person is genuinely unrepentant, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, not unrepentant, is, is genuinely unbeliever, and they're saying, hey, no, I'm, I am renouncing faith in Christ, you would, we would remove them from membership, um, but they wouldn't go under church discipline because that doesn't even make, doesn't make sense. Okay, they would just be like a random, at that point, they would just be like an unbeliever who, who just walked in. And it would be sad, don't get me wrong, it wouldn't be the same because everyone would know them, but theologically, um, they're not claiming to represent Jesus. They're not claiming to have a renewed heart at that point. If I'm claiming, I'm, apost I'm not claiming to represent Jesus. You do want to, you would want to press in and ask questions though, because this can be a, it could be a church discipline dodge as well. Oh, I'm an unbeliever. I'm going to remove myself from fellowship. But you know what happens? A month later, get my second wind believer again and I'm going to join the other and I'm going to join another church so I'm just saying some of this requires some of it requires wisdom in terms of practice 
is someone trying to hose you because they can they know how this works if someone's been in a church they know how church discipline works they know you cannot discipline someone who's not even claiming to represent christ can they in some crisis of faith they may be having oh i'm not sure i'm a believer to try to get out yes they can so my, my my answer is this if someone is is clearly proclaiming to be an unbeliever uh then, then, then you're going to remove them just from the role and, and you just preach the gospel to them and hope that they stick around. Um, and they should have no problem with that. That's the thing. If they're truly an unbeliever, they should have no problem with any of that, right? Well, of course, I don't, I don't believe this whole story. The whole thing's a fairy tale. I'm not trying to be a church member. Um, if someone is fudging on that, then it'll. I think it will. It will become pretty quick. Uh, in many cases, easy to discern what's going on, but you still have to use wisdom. Okay. All right. So let me just summarize here. Church discipline. A summary. These are some bullet uh, bullet points to wrap up our whole discussion over the past couple of weeks. Okay. And I understand it's a lot of text, but hopefully this is helpful. Church discipline serves the twofold purpose of guarding the purity of the church and urging a sinner towards repentance through restoration aim based. I'm sorry, through restoration-aimed shaming. It is not punitive. Again, outside of the camp, the idea is to have them repent and believe. This is not punishment in the vindictive kind of sense, in a judicial sense. It is, the whole goal of it is to, is to restore somebody. That's what we're wanting to see. Number two, meaningful church discipline requires regenerate church membership. Okay, meaningful church discipline, if you're going to have especially if you're going to, I should maybe put a caveat in there, if you're going to do it congregationally, requires, if, if you don't do it congregationally and you punt everything upstairs to the elders, then you can have a version of it. It's just not congregational church discipline. So I probably should have put a, a, an asterisk there. Then you're in a Presbyterian church, for example, you might have really godly elders put someone under church discipline and it works. Um, but if you think the congregation holds the keys and you have a ton of unbelievers in your congregation, you're, you're stuck. In fact, in seminary, in our ecclesiology, theology classes, my professor was, you know, he wrote a book on, John Hammett wrote a book on ecclesiology, Baptist Foundations for Ecclesiology. And he said, this is the problem. He's like, you can't do church discipline without good membership, but we've got to recover biblical regenerate church membership. We can't just have the, did you, and I gave you, I gave you the example of how I became a member of that church, uh, Couple, well, a couple of years ago, a long time ago, at this point where it was just a yes, vote in, now you're a member. And so you have a church, it's a Baptist church filled with unbelievers who are wielding, who are wielding the keys in church discipline cases and all the rest of like, that doesn't work. So, so, so biblical church discipline requires regenerate church membership. Um, that is to say a church membership who's doing the key wielding that is, that is believers. As a keel-wielding activity, the church is the final arbiter in church discipline. Okay, so we don't have, as a congregationalist model, does not have a hierarchical system where that person goes, I'm going to appeal to the presbytery. No, I'm going to appeal to the general assembly, uh, the Episcopal. I'm going to appeal to the synod. It's not how it works. It's not hierarchical. Okay, the keel, as a keel-wielding activity, the church is the final arbiter in church discipline. That's the last stop in Matthew 18. Critically, we talked about this last time, church discipline does not require that members know a potential candidate for church discipline personally. All they need to know, all they need to know is that 
the inconsistent triad is present. And what is that triad? Does anyone remember the triad? I mean, I already said it once, but I was interested. Does anyone remember the three things that kind of come together to create the tension of church discipline? Okay, how scripture describes Christ followers. Here's what the Bible says a Christ follower looks like. Person professes to be a spirit and dwelt follower of Jesus and the contingent facts of the situation suggesting that a person is unrepentantly living in a manner that does not describe a Christ follower. Okay, so again, just notice how the scripture is never going to change. Obviously, it's going to describe a Christ follower all the time. But those, those latter two can. So if, again, if, if the person does not profess to be a Christ follower, then you don't have the inconsistent triad, no church discipline. If you've got the first two but not the third one, meaning they're not living unrepentantly, you also don't have church discipline. You have all three of those, that's when church discipline comes up. When all three of those, they can't be all fit together. Something's got to give here. Okay? So again, you do not need to know the person uh extremely well. You need to know what the scripture says. You need to know that they profess Jesus, and then you need to know like what are they doing that is in unrepentant sin. That's all you need to know. You don't have to know the person very well to make such a call. Similarly, and this is so important here, I think a lot of people um, sometimes think about this in, in, incorrectly. Consideration of church discipline by members does not involve making a private judgment call about the status of someone's soul. It is the evaluation of the triad. And that's basically what that is right there. So if you're, so let's just hypothetically, we're, we are in a tragic case of here we are, church discipline. We've had a church discipline. We've called a meeting for this, and we've put it to a vote because that's what we, how we believe it works. We pass out our ballots. Here's what someone should not be thinking as they fill out their ballot. Is this person's soul justified? Like, uh. Do I have a private intuition that this person is fundamentally a Christian? That's not it. That's not it. You might have a private suspicion that this person's a Christian backsliding in sin or a private suspicion that this person is a Christian who got caught up in this and that or a Christian who is stubbornly whatever. You might have a private judgment. My intuition is that this person is actually. That's not it. Scripture Here's what scripture says. Here's what this person's doing. Here's what they're professing about Jesus. The triad. Okay? No one has, no one's omniscient here. And church discipline is not asking you to make people make internal calls about the status of somebody's soul. Okay? And in that sense, it is impersonal. In that sense, it's impersonal. It's objective. It's according to the scripture, much more objective according to the scripture. You do have to make an evaluation uh, uh, about what what the person is presumably not turning from, if that is, of course, rotten fruit. But you don't have to make a private judgment about the status of someone's soul. Does that make sense, by the way, that distinction? Okay. I think it is totally consistent by the, to vote that someone should go under church discipline who you think in the back of your head, if you had to step up to the roulette wheel of life and cast a bet, is a Christian. That's not what we're asking. We're not asking people if you had to step up to the roulette wheel of life and place your bet, if this person's a Christian, then mark yes or no. That's not it. We're asking people, well, here's what the scripture says. Here's what the person professes. 
Here's their public unrepentant rotten fruit. That's the triad. Questions about that? Does that seem to Yes. No, no, no. Yeah. Yeah, it's fine. It's good. Yeah. Yeah, so that's a that's a great question. So we do have a, we have associate membership. Uh, we have a, we have a full membership and an associate membership, and the the only difference is that the associate membership does not have voting ability, and that is because for our younger people, someone voting on whether or not we're supposed to put some uh, uh, there there are issues that come up that just don't seem appropriate for people who nevertheless generally seem to be in the kingdom of God, but making calls about whether we should spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on something or whether we should do this or that in, in, in some complicated situation seems beyond the pale of what we would probably expect that person to do in the rest of life or in the church. Uh, but the, there is no distinction, and that is why we do church membership the way that we do. There is no distinction from a discipline standpoint. So an associate member um, is is still an appropriate potential object of church discipline. Okay, they are still, and, and that's why we put them through the same membership interview and they fill out the same application. There's not like a junior application because everyone who becomes a member is an appropriate object um, of church discipline. Um, so we take we certainly take that seriously, but the and that includes associate members, even though they will not be able to to vote in in meetings. Okay, does that answer the question? Okay. Yeah, so if you're a member, you're a member. Okay, finally, the process of restoration from church discipline will differ in every case, but will ultimately happen when the congregation can once again affirm that a person's life is consistent with their profession of faith according to Scripture. Okay? And what likely that will, again, because not everyone knows everyone personally, that will likely involve um, the elders bringing something to bear, saying, hi, this, hey, everybody, this, tend, this seems to be what's going on. This person has said this. Here's how the trajectory has been. Here's what we understand to be the case. We're presenting this to you. Ask questions, and then there would be a, a, a restoration uh, kind of a, a vote. And that is that it comes right there out of 2 Corinthians 2, the punishment inflicted by the majority. It seemed like there was some kind of majority decision to put some some guy out and they said you know this person is repentant so you know let him back in so he's not overcome by by grief but it did seem that there was some who maybe said no i don't think this person should be out but the majority did and now paul is saying in light of that person's repentance to restore them because it's not supposed to be judicial punishment this is that's the whole goal okay all right so that is all i yes So were you here last time? You here two weeks ago? Oh, okay. So we we talked about the um, we talked about this one, and it's going to probably it's going to depend. It's going to depend on what's going on. You don't want to. I made a joke, and well, it's not really a joke. It is true, but you don't want to put someone in church discipline who's like in a ditch somewhere, like dead, because just no one can find them. Well, there's no one. There's no one's returning my phone calls. No one this and that. Is it someone who? So the details on the are kind of kind of depend on the situation. Why is it that this person isn't coming? Can anyone get in touch with them? What's happened? What's their reason? Are they ghosting everyone? Are they saying I'm gone for reason X, Y, Z? So in the case of the, uh, the serial non-attender, 
um, it's, it's going to be very situation specific. You mean if someone's not there, like not showing up? I mean, I try to, I mean, I, we certainly try to reach out to people who we uh, haven't seen, just see what's going on. And we hope that other people are doing that as well. Um, but yeah, I reach out, but, but I don't reach out to people because I think they're necessarily slipping or something. I'm like, well, maybe that they were sick. Maybe they're out of town. It's, I mean, I send, some of y'all have gotten my message before. Hey, I missed you at church, making sure everything's okay. I mean, it's, it's not one of those like, where were you? Like for me, it's just a genuine concern, you know. You're regularly here, you weren't there, just want to make sure everyone's okay. In fact, I checked in with one person this last week as hey, I didn't see you last Sunday, and they say, Oh, we were sick. We were really sick. It's like, oh man, did any, I don't I don't know if anyone knew. I'm so sorry. Don't need anything. So yeah, but we do, yeah, certainly try to uh keep tabs on on what's going on and we don't want to let people just slip out without trying to, you know, uh, seek them out in some measure. Certainly, yeah. Any other questions? All right, if you have any further questions, please let me know. I'm happy to uh, happy to discuss them and uh, work through examples or whatever you want um, and, and talk about any of, so any of these nuances, okay? All right, so now we are shifting, pivoting pretty seriously, I would say, to baptism. Baptism, the entry right of the new covenant. Baptism, as most of you are very well aware, as an entry right and as a sign, is not something that plops down uh, from heaven out of nowhere in the story of the people of God. Uh, because in the Old Testament, we have this not-so-delightful thing called circumcision. Uh, circumcision was, uh, first of all, obviously administered only to infant males. Uh, but circumcision, you should know, was not unique to ancient Israel. In fact, um, at least according to how I understand it, and it seems like someone's always finding some exception somewhere. But does anyone know the one kind of um, cultic practice, not cultic like in a cult, I mean, a religious practice, of Israel that was unique among all the nations. It wasn't circumcision. Certainly wasn't sacrifices. It wasn't a priesthood. The Sabbath. The Sabbath in the ancient Near East is an absolutely bizarre thing. Because if you, you know, I mean, the Sabbath is a counterintuitive, it, you, that's when you lose production time. The Sabbath is when you, uh, when, when your, your slaves could be working in the field if you're in Babylon or whatever the case may be. No, no, no. Uh, the, the Sabbath is unique in Israel. Circumcision is not, but it was very, it was very important. Um, let me read this because this is a foundational. This is a foundational passage here. Um, in nine, where is it here? It's not it. Oh, I was say, yeah, it's. I'm in. Oh, my goodness. That's why. I was in the wrong book of the Bible. That's not what I'm looking for at all. I'm so sorry. All right. Genesis 17. Genesis 17. Not Deuteronomy 17. You will not find what you're looking for in Deuteronomy 17. 
Genesis 7, Genesis 17. Um, we are. We read about the covenant of circumcision. Okay, and I'm just going to read. And I want you to listen. Um, I'm going to start back in, in verse seven. Okay. And I will establish my covenant. No, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back further. Let's just read the. Let's just read from the beginning, actually, so we can get good context for what we're going to do here. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, okay? I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you uh, and may multiply you greatly. And by the way, to make a covenant in Hebrew is karat berit. It is to cut a covenant, which is why the circumcision language is so appropriate for the covenant sign, to cut the language in the Hebrew again, when you say make a covenant, I'm going to cut a covenant. Just like I'm going to cut a deal with somebody, kind of like that just in Hebrew, but it's very intentional. I'm cutting a covenant, and it's not accidental that an animal gets cut in half as part of the, uh, uh, the, the original ceremony. Anyways, then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall no longer be the father uh, of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be uh, called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant uh, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. So that's the context. Then you get verse 9. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be, and then here's that, he, this is where you kind of get the play on words, shall be cut off from his people. For he has broken my covenant, which is why most theologians agree that circumcision is likely a dual sign. It functions as a dual sign. I am a part of the people of God, and yet my unfaithfulness to Yahweh will cause me to be cut off. Okay? Will cause me to be cut off. Now, this is where I want to go to Deuteronomy chapter 10. And again, all this is setting the stage uh, for baptism, okay? I'm not just randomly talking about circumcision, I assure you. Deuteronomy chapter 10. Let's listen to what it says here. And this is going to come into play when we talk about baptism and, and the, kind of it being a fulfillment. Listen, this is very important for the baptism discussion and how circumcision relates to baptism. And now, Deuteronomy 10, 12, Israel what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. 
Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples, as you are this day, verse 16, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart, he says. Now that have been, imagine you're standing there, Deuteronomy, second giving of the law. We've already whiffed on the promised land once. Here we are, Moses re-giving it before we enter. He gets to this part, and like, yeah, we know to all be circumcised. And he adds, he says this, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. Okay, so from the beginning, I, what I want to suggest is that circumcision is a dual sign. Um, it is to, God cuts a covenant with his people. Then he gives a sign that involves cutting, uh, that involves cutting, and to set the, his people apart. And again, to be clear, I'm always going to say this. I know it's, it's because it, the, the discontinuity here is very meaningful. Not everyone in this covenant with Abraham uh, comes from Abraham, excuse me, but based on the Abrahamic covenant, not everyone in the covenant gets the sign. Okay? You might think that's a radical dis piece of discontinuity in the new covenant. So it's not just the Mosaic part that only infant males get the sign. We read from Genesis, that's before the Mosaic covenant starts, remember? Well, another head, yes, remember Genesis? Before the Mosaic Covenant, it's not all, not everyone gets the sign who's part of the people. It's only the males, the infant males. Critical, because in the New Covenant, something, something different is going to happen there about the sign. Yes? Uh, a uh, like a like a God fearer would, so so they could, but most of them like when you get to the new pages of the New Testament, no, they were people who who observed the monotheism of ancient Israel, but did not, for example, get circumcised, and in some cases, and, and didn't obey a lot of the food laws. They're kind of like a. I was going to make a joke, but it probably shouldn't. They're, they're kind of like a yeah. They, they, they were like a half. They they kind of were. With the spirit of the the spirit of Israel and the God of Israel, but without the particularly Jewish component of it. Um, however, you do have, like you like we just read back in Genesis 17, that if I purchase someone or acquire someone, I'm going to circumcise them. And and trust me, if they're going to stay in the camp of Israel, they're going to do what Yahweh says, right? So there's a kind of a both and answer, but um, not necessarily. So when you get those God fearing Greeks and stuff in Acts, that's that's what it's talking about. It's someone who adheres to the, the monotheism of ancient Israel and worships Yahweh, but doesn't observe some of the ceremonial uh, stuff, okay? Um, okay, oh no, well, I guess that's a decent, that's a decent point to cut us off at, uh, right at 945. So next time we'll come back, we'll move to into the new covenant. I know that's a very brief, uh, but remember the sign given originally to Abraham, uh, a physical sign, but it also pointed to an internal reality, circumcise your hearts. 
That's going to be important for the relationship between baptism and circumcision. And whether baptism replaces circumcision, fulfills circumcision, both or neither, we're going to talk about that and what the implications are. And then who are the appropriate recipients of it? What does baptism do? Um, what is the relationship between baptism and sal uh, salvation, justification? All of that, we're going to get into all of it. It's going to be a great time, but we don't have time for that uh, right now. So let's close out and, uh, and uh, appreciate your attention this morning. God, uh, we're thankful to be able to consider these things again. Some of these things are challenging, uh, particularly some of the church discipline stuff. It requires wisdom, and uh, we pray for a spirit of wisdom and that, um, that we would act in accordance with the spirit of your word when it comes to these things. Help us be sobered by the fact that we participate in such processes. Thank you for the membership of this church. Um, thank you for guaranteeing that your spirit is with us in a powerful way when we wield the keys. So be with us, please, as we sing praises to you, read your scripture, and, and hear the word preached in our next hour. In Jesus' name, amen.